February 1970 saw the birth of heavy metal with the release of Black Sabbath's self-titled debut and the death of one of cinema's greatest composers with the passing of Alfred Newman. Musically, they couldn't be farther apart, but they both played essential roles in defining the popular culture of their time. The movies of that month are also a study in contrasts. There's a little bit of heavy metal and a little bit of Hollywood classical. It's a brisky point. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. The family that plays together slays together. I'm Hercules. So you told him. No man is superior to Hercules. We will see. We see what happened. The first release of that month joined three of the classic icons of horror for the first time in the same film. At first, the police thought the girl had been hacked to pieces by a sex maniac. But now, investigation reveals much more. The terror they are hunting is something less than human, more monster than man. This girl wasn't born. She was assembled piece by piece from living human flesh. The killer took her apart the same way. This is what nightmares are made of. Scream and Scream Again with Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing is the ultimate in horror shock that will make you scream and scream again in color. Rated M. As the new decade emerged, studios, production heads, and filmmakers alike were all struggling with the same question. What the hell does the youth market want to see? This challenge was especially pronounced in the horror genre. Studios like Hammer Films and Amicus Productions made their bread and butter on the horror of the old-school gothic variety. Spooky mansions, period costumes, throw in a Dracula or Frankenstein. But as the culture began to shift, audiences were no longer frightened by the same tried-and-true formulas. It was a time for people and studios and, and genres to redefine themselves. Film analyst and author of horror films of the 1970s, John Kenneth Muir. Are, are we afraid of the same thing? Well, no, we're afraid of very different things. We're afraid, uh, you know, we're in a war we're losing. We're losing trust in our government. You know, Watergate's only a couple of years away. Uh, we're losing faith, actually, in all of these pillars of... American society. Uh, fewer people are going to church. Uh, divorce is on the rise. We've got, you know, we, we now have the birth control pill, which is changing sexuality. And then, you know, we have Roe versus Wade coming up. So, I mean, it is a time of incredible change. We've got the, the, the hippies, the hippie movement, which then, you know, also sort of mutates into these other movements uh, like Charles Manson and things like that, like you know, counterculture becoming, you know, antisocial. Co-host of the podcast, and now the podcast starts, an exploration of the films of horror icons Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, T.D. Velasquez. I mean, I, I think the line in the sun that's always referred to is, nice to the living dead. 
which kind of changes the face of of what horror in cinema means, really. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! And it certainly took Hammer a long time to, to work out how to respond to that change. And arguably, they never really worked it out, you know. Um, it, it, by about 1973, they were modernizing their productions and trying to tap into the kind of a more contemporary version of horror that was more um, connected to a, a young audience. But I, I don't think that any of the films that they tried to make in that vein are very well regarded or remembered. Oddly enough, Scream and Scream Again was was earlier than that and was arguably much more successful um, in, in kind of tapping into that vibe, that zeitgeist. But um, that wasn't Hammer. And even though it technically was made by Amicus, it wasn't really like other Amicus movies either. Scream and Scream Again promised to satisfy the longtime diehard fans of the genre by being the first film to feature the three major icons of horror. Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing. More on that later. But it also interjected a political conspiracy, a serial killer, a 15-minute car chase, and many other elements that were believed to be popular with the youth crowds of the time. Many, many other elements. How would you describe the plot of Scream and Scream Again? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that is a difficult question. Um... I think the word that you need is plots there. I think it's got several plots. Um, and uh, the the question is, do they all come together in a way that um, makes sense at the end? Um, I think that's, that's debatable. But um, the, the the nightmarish plot about the, uh, the runner who finds himself in hospital and every time he wakes up and is visited by the nurse, one of his limbs has gone missing. Um, so he just essentially disintegrates over the course of the film. We keep cutting back to him. And no other characters refer to this plot at all. Nurse. What's happening? What are they doing? Oh. Then there's the plot about the, um, the, the character who becomes known as the vampire killer in London. Um, this, this striking man who stalks nightclubs and lures young women away um, and attacks them and and drinks their blood, hence the name. You gonna buy me a drink? How about coming for a ride? Not here. It's no good here. And the police investigation into those killings led by uh, Detective Superintendent Belliver, who's a great character. She wasn't just murdered, if you uh, know what I mean. And then we've got the whole storyline of the um, unnamed Eastern European country in which a character who is possibly called Conrad, or possibly Conrad, depending on which other character says his name, is kind of infiltrating the, the military establishment and eliminating rivals, torturing dissidents. Don't worry. You will tell me. You will. You will. So that's at least three. Things do tie together, but I'm not sure it's entirely clear how they do. And I think the appeal of the movie 
is really in how well each of these individual plot lines are presented. And what of the three horror icons who are the big selling points of the film? Peter Cushing plays an Eastern European military official in what amounts to a cameo. He's dispatched of quickly and shares no scenes with Price or Lee. We have party unity. Those who dissent are eventually converted thanks to people like us and our methods. But military rule is frowned upon these days. We need all the political friends we can get. Christopher Lee plays a head of British intelligence. He shares one scene with Price, yet the two are only spotted in the same frame together for a few seconds. Where is Conrad? He tried to destroy all of this. He thought we'd been careless in letting my work go too far. He was evil. He made me realize that we aren't perfect yet. That we could be corrupted by too much power. So we must find all of the others who may have gone bad and destroy them before it's too late. It is too late now. Vincent Price fares the best in terms of screen time. He plays Dr. Browning, an expert in organ and limb transplantation, who sets out to create a super race. It's the old man scientist's dream. Let's play God. My dear young man, you know as well as I do that God is dying all over the world. Man invented him but doesn't need him anymore. Man is God now. As a matter of fact, he always was. But where will this end? Overpopulation, pollution, famine, nuclear holocaust, war. This civilization is driving us into the sea of extinction. The keynote is control. That's the province of politicians, not scientists. Yes, but we're the only ones who are trying to combat the problem now. In 20 years' time, we will be in positions of power, and then we'll be ready to act for the good of humanity. The film itself is like a Frankenstein monster, piecing together disparate elements to create something wholly unique. Credit the pairing of director Gordon Hessler and screenwriter Christopher Wicking, a duo who worked together previously on The Oblong Box, and would continue a harmonious collaboration over the course of several films in the early 70s. I actually think it's one of the most intelligent and entertaining British um, horrors, uh, British films of the 1970s. The curator of the Vincent Price Legacy UK and the sound of Vincent Price websites, Peter Fuller. Milton Sabotsky, uh, who was running Amicus at the time, they had already done a couple of um, sci-fi films, the Terranauts, and they came from outer space. And he was looking for yet another space vehicle, a space um, story uh, to do. And he happened upon uh, this pulpy novel, which was called The Disorientated Man. And he got it, and he looked at it, and I think he bought the rights for about £150 or something, and uh, ended up fashioning a script out of it. And he wanted to do that, but he needed money. So he went to AIP and uh, asked um, uh, Sam Arkoff about it. But Sam sort of gave it to his uh, right-hand man, who was um, uh, D.K. Hayward, who was in, um, in London. He was looking after the, um, uh, the European side of AIP. And he said, yep, yeah, we'll do it. So they stumped up the money for it, which is like 350000 uh, but it was on the condition. They had to use the same crew as they were used on the Oblong Box, which included Vincent Price as being the star. Mm. 
Um, and it goes on from there because, uh, unfortunately, when uh, Gordon Hessler was assigned to do the uh, Scream and Scream again, he looked at the script and went, oh, my God, this is just terrible because Milton Zabotsky had actually really changed it. Now, I have not actually read the draft uh, script of that or what, what he actually changed, but Christopher Wicking looked at it and said, oh, do you know what? This is terrible. But he went back to the source novel and he found that the source novel had a very, very unique structure. And that unique structure plays out in the final, um, uh, what, what we see on screen. And that's that disorientated sort of um, different sets of stories which all come together at the end. You have to go back to the source novel and you realise that Christopher Wicking hasn't really, all he's done is actually, well, you know what, these elements are all really key to what's happening today. Things like um, fascist regimes taking over, uh, you know, um, human experiment, experimentation on genetic uh, research. And I just think it all tapped into what was happening at the time. But then chuck in a bit of like, you know, um, a, a, a political drama, political thriller mm. and some car chases. And, you know, you've got a great combination, a great fusion. Wicking never had a collaborator like Gordon Hessler again. He was very fortunate because Gordon Hessler and he saw eye to eye on everything. Film historian Steve Haberman. Sometimes he'd come up with ideas for shots, like Wicking came up with the idea of that spectacular shot in Scream and Scream Again, where you first see Alfred Marks as the uh, superintendent of police. And it's just the most amazing shot, because first of all, it's shot at sundown, it looks like. And he's, he's walking along with this dead girl, and he's being followed by other police and, and reporters who are noting down what he's saying. And the camera is tracking along with him as he walks away from the body and toward his car. And he's talking the whole time, and the camera just keeps moving, obviously, on a crane. And then he gets in the car, and uh, he, the car pulls off onto the road and drives back into the, into the background as the sun seems to be going down. I mean, it's the most amazing shot. That was Christopher Wicking's idea. He said, what if we did this in one shot? And Gordon Hessler said, let's do that. Gordon Hessler was a middle-aged man, and, and Christopher Wicking was in his 20s. And uh, Gordon Hessler was a very quiet guy, very almost passive-seeming guy, but very strong in his beliefs. And what Christopher Wicking did, I think, was he unleashed the leftist in Gordon Hessler. And, mm. and so these movies are all very, very uh, sort of um, secular illustrations of the theme of sin and retribution, in which the sin is committed, committed by an older generation. And it's usually on the current generation, the youngest generation. In other words, the, the, the older generation is is exploiting youth for their own selfish reasons or to hide their past or for whatever reason that the narrative gives them. But it's very consistent that way. And they consciously made them these works of counterculture set in a Gothic past, in all cases except Scream and Scream Again, which was kind of set in a weird science fiction-y present, you know. Mm. And Wicking said that, you know, to deal with Real things naturalistically is boring. He says that's what British cinema has always done, sort of the kitchen sink uh, school of, of cinema. He said w it's much, much more creatively inspiring to, to uh, deal with these things metaphorically in a, in a fantasy context 
like uh, the oblong box Christopher Wicking wrote as a protest against colonialism, British colonialism, and its exploitation of of uh, indigenous peoples. And it's brilliant in that. And uh, uh, Scream and Scream Again is about how uh, progressivism can destroy itself by going too far. Not that we don't need a revolution, we just don't need this revolution, where you're using the body parts of the young to create you know, an army of protest to, to uh, take the world away from the corrupt older generation. Christopher Wicking it was a, quite an intellectual screenwriter. He was extremely well-versed in film history and aesthetics, not to mention current affairs and you know, other artistic movements. He was a very kind of uh, erudite guy. And Gordon Hessler was an extremely skillful and kind of avant-garde director. Even though he had worked for Hitchcock for all these decades, he also embraced, you know, handheld camera and wide-angle lenses and, uh, you know, extreme moving shots. And, you know, he was always, he was like pushing the boundaries of narrative filmmaking in, in the very commercial realm of AIP horror films. I mean, I, I still find that it's, it's, it's got the mix of um, sci-fi, uh, crime procedural drama, and political thriller. And I think... That's a fusion that comes together, which is quite unique. It was on a dark street in a respectable suburban neighborhood that the thing first made its presence known. See Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing, three masters of the macabre in Scream and Scream Again. Many of the films that were produced during this period delighted in the shattering of taboos. Comedy was not immune to this ambition. Just two years earlier, Mel Brooks had found humor in Hitler with the producers. On February 4th of 1970, Start the Revolution Without Me found laughs in the violent arena of the French Revolution. Start the Revolution Without Me! Gene Wilder. Out of the producers, remember? I don't find that amusing. Donald Sutherland. Oh, there. be gracious. Start the revolution without me. Filmed almost entirely in Paris, Start the Revolution Without Me is a farcical tale of mistaken identity. Two sets of identical twins are separated at birth. One set, Felipe and Pierre de Sisi, are aristocrats and master swordsmen. What's he saying? He wants us to betray the king and align ourselves with him. He has a secret plan which only you can uncover. And what is the reward for this treachery? Half of France. Hmm. And for my brother? The other set, Charles and Claude, are nitwits who live a life of peasantry. Born on that rainy night 30 years ago, Claude and Charles Coupe, orphaned in youth, living by their wits, they were dragooned into the cause of the rebels. Lovers of liberty, they knew no liberty. On the eve of the French Revolution, one set is mistaken for the other. And of course, hijinks ensue. Listen, maybe we can fool some servants, but what we can do tonight at that ball? If you believe you're the CC, they'll believe you're the CC. If I believe, I'm gonna get my head chopped off. 
I said we do not wish to be disturbed. Out. What was I just talking about? The film was scripted by Fred Freeman and Lawrence J. Cohen, a collaboration that would continue over the course of four feature films from 1970 to 1991. Both writers started in the world of television comedy, pinning material for The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and Gilligan's Island. But when they attempted to pitch their own ideas to the networks, their oddball, outside-the-box approach to comedy proved too daring and risque for the time. Um, I think we both had a similar point of view. We both enjoyed uh, satire, you know. Co-screenwriter. Fred Freeman. Like CBS always says, oh, we all we loved the guy. You guys did the funniest pilots, but we'll never put them on the air. While Freeman and Cohen might not have been embraced by television networks for their bold ideas, writer, producer, director Norman Lear and producer director Bud Yorkin were. Together, through their partnership titled Tandem Productions, they managed to change the face of television in the seventies with back-to-back hit shows, including All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Maud, Good Times, and Sanford and Son. But in the decade prior to these now classic shows, Lear and Yorkin ventured into the world of feature films, which led to early efforts like Come Blow Your Horn and Divorce American Style. Both men were enthusiastic about bringing Start the Revolution Without Me to the big screen. Norman Lear came to us. He had an idea that um, uh, about how about doing a movie about two sets of twin, twins that get mixed up at birth and, and during the Civil War. And so I said, well, it sounds two sets of twins who get mixed up sounds more like Moliere. So why don't we do it in the French Revolution? Oh wow! You know, which it did sound like. You know what I mean? When you get into that kind of farce. Start the revolution without me would be Fred Freeman and Lawrence Cohen's first feature film. Once the contracts were in place, Lear was on board to executive produce, with Yorkin taking over producing and directing duties. Everyone warned us about Yorkin and Lear, that oh, they're going to redo the whole thing. Well, Norman never touched it at all, you know. Hmm. Uh, and he said, years later, he said it was always one of the best comedy screenplays he ever read. In addition to the casting of Gene Wilder and Donald Sutherland as the two, or rather, four leads, the ensemble featured a who's who of terrific character actors. Well, how, how far did your involvement go with Start the Revolution Without Me? Were you, were you present for the filming we at all? We went or? over there for two weeks. They paid us to go for two weeks only. Okay. You know, in case we did, a, maybe I can't even remember, we probably did a little bit of rewriting. Um, and at least we got to Europe for a couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, we couldn't tell. There was a table reading, which had these the one, wonderful English actors, uh, Victor Spinetti. No one knows who he is, but he was, he was very funny. Uh, uh, Billy Whitelaw was a well-known actress. Hugh Griffith was a well-known actor. Uh, Hugh Griffith played the king. And uh, the problem with Hugh Griffith was he was drunk a lot. Mm. And he had just been fired off of a previous picture. So they hired him to do Start the Revolution. 
think they hired a a bodyguard, a valet bodyguard, and paid his wife also to you know watch him. <laughs> and of course, in the middle of the movie, they come into his dressing room, and all three of them are drunk. So, so. the film also featured none other than Orson Welles, the genius giant of cinema, who lent authentic gravitas to the film's opening setup. Hello, I'm Orson Welles. Lovely, isn't it? The Summer Palace of Louis the Sixteenth. You know, historians have recently discovered a previously unknown fact concerning this palace, an event which almost changed the entire history of Western Europe. Did you know that the entire French Revolution could have been avoided? It's true. No one knows what took place there. It's an event of such importance that men of integrity, and I may say of considerable resources, have made a film on the subject. It's a color film, which I am not in. The opening of the movie had Orson Welles narrating it. And the original script he would not do, we didn't know this at the time. The original script, he was as he was narrating, he's romping on these beautiful grounds with these gorgeous hound dogs mm. all over the place. And halfway through the narration, you don't see anything, but you obviously know he stepped in shit. <laughs> and so the rest of the narration was he was trying to scrape off his shoe as he was narrating and it i think it would have worked but he refused to do it the king's summer palace 1789 king louis whose tinkering with timepieces did not tell him his own time was running out Queen Marie tinkered with everything but timepieces. She didn't care what time it was. But the evil Escargo knew what time it was. His tinkering was well-timed. For the time was... 1789. Perhaps what's most impressive about the film, beyond its authentic setting and meticulously detailed costuming, is the sophistication of its wordplay especially as it's recited by the sly and manic Wilder and the more reserved and effeminate Sutherland. In honor, sir. What brings you to Paddock? Oh, you might say uh, a little business. And a little pleasure. Which do you prefer, business or pleasure? Well, that depends on what you regard as business. And what you may regard as pleasure. In Paris, we say business is pleasure. And to us, pleasure is our business. Then your business should be a pleasure, making my pleasure a business. Unless some mistake business for pleasure, while others know no business but pleasure. In that case, sir, I will show you my business. My pleasure. Gene had just come off doing The Producers, so it was his third movie. Author of Gene Wilder, Funny and Sad, Brian Scott Mednick. The movie was filmed in France, and Gene was a real Francophile, so he just loved the filming of, of Start the Revolution. And he was married to his second wife, and he brought her and his uh, the wife's daughter, who he adopted, Katie, there, so um, Bud Yorkin said he just loved uh, 
when they weren't filming, you know, finding little out-of-the-way restaurants and new French wines. And Gene Wilder was actually a very good fencer. You know, he said everyone was stunned when he got into these sword fights. He said all of a sudden Gene became an animal. He went to the Old Vic Theater School in in Bristol, England, and he learned fencing there. And uh, he also, there's uh, a lot of fencing in his first movie, The Director, The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. So uh, uh, it was it was a good experience for him. The film actually did open to a lot of positive reviews, um, but it wasn't a hit, uh, Yorkin said, because he, Bud Yorkin did not have a good relationship with someone at the studio, and it didn't get basically the publicity that it, it, it should have. But it's considered today uh, what's known as a cult classic, um, and people who who really loved the movie, and there are a lot of them, they're crazy about it. And Bud Yorkin said to me, I, I interviewed him in 1996, and he said he'd go to universities to talk about, you know, he thought all the questions were going to be about all in the family. And, you know, people were asking him about, about Start the Revolution Without Me. So uh, it's it's a great okay. film. Uh, I think it was very underrated and underseen for, for a long time, but um, thanks to home video and DVDs, it's it's a very accessible film, and I think a lot of people have, have discovered it. And it's such an unusual setting for the kind of comedy it is, too. It's just an unusual, unique movie that feels is, like yeah. something that requires some time to catch on. Yeah, I, re- I remember first seeing it on television when I was very young, and I... Uh, I liked it right away. I mean, I saw it many times after that, and uh, it's it's a film that really benefits from repeated viewings. It's 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 a, it's a really funny, funny, well-made film. I like this plan. Half of France will soon be ours. Why settle for half when all of France can be ours? All of France. Yes. We don't need escargot. Exactly. Exactly. All the castles. All the chapels. All the windows. All the drapes. All the leather. All the lace. All the forests. All the flowers. All the land. All the grass. The rocks. The stone. The pebbles. The dirt. The mud. The mud. I have a new destiny. One day I shall be king! And I shall be queen! On March 27th, 1995, Jack Nicholson took the stage to present an honorary Oscar to legendary filmmaker Michelangelo Antonioni. Most movies celebrate the ways we connect with one another. The films of this master mourn the failures to connect. In the empty, silent spaces of the world, he has found metaphors that illuminate the silent places of our hearts, and found in them, too, a strange and terrible beauty. The experience of standing on the Oscar stage that night was undoubtedly more celebratory than his previous visit to Los Angeles 27 years earlier. 
when the maestro began shooting his first and last American feature. Zabriskie Point, a remote and barren blister of land in the American desert. As isolated as the face of the moon. By the time the film was released nearly two years later, on February 9th, 1970, it left in its wake a run of bad press, FBI scrutiny over its production, and a studio that wanted it dumped and forgotten. I don't think he quite understood what making a movie for MGM was going to be like until it was too late. The truly great films from this period of American cinema are inseparable from the European influences that preceded them. Fellini, Godard, Bergman, Truffaut. These are just a few of the masters that challenged traditional narrative with great elation and authority. Michelangelo Antonioni was one of the most consequential of these filmmakers. In his hands, the principal tenets that informed the common perception of what a film was, dialogue, characters, plot, played second fiddle to the environment in which they were housed. Film critic and author of the films of Michelangelo Antonioni, Peter Brunette. This is what people don't understand. They think when a character is feeling emotion, or the director wants you, the spectator, to experience an emotion, what you need to do is zoom in for the close-up. Get that tear going down that cheek, and then that's how you show emotion. What I think Antonioni knew, and what those who have followed him, and there are plenty of directors I could name, Wong Kar Wai, whom I also wrote a book on, says that Antonioni is his greatest favorite, you know, absolute favorite director. What they understand is that you can ex often express more emotion by pulling the camera back as far as possible and letting the entire frame speak mm -hmm. emotionally, sort of the way abstract painting works. You, you, you feel an emotion because of the shapes and the colors and the emptiness. It's not because you've zoomed in on somebody crying. Distinguished professor of film studies at Oregon State University, John Lewis. If you think about La Ventura, which is the film that sort of established Antonioni as, as a kind of uh, important director, you know, it begins on this sort of, on this island where they lose a character, you know, who never returns in the film. Uh, and, and the very last scene of that movie is this moment where she maybe forgives her lover who's sort of, sort of been inconsistent the whole movie and is the lover of the woman who disappeared. And, and um, he finds this sort of amazing ruin and they're sort of sitting on this, this sort of platform on this ruin and you can see mountains in the background. And it's clear that the problems of these two insignificant people are far less interesting to him than the landscape that they mm. occupy. The genesis of Zabriskie Point lies in the global success of Antonioni's previous and perhaps most accessible film, Blow Up. What are you doing? Stop it! Stop it! Give me those pictures. You can't photograph people like that. Who says I can't? I'm only doing my job. Some people are bullfighters. Some people are politicians. I'm a photographer. The contract that led to the making of uh, Sibriski Point began when uh, MGM contracted to get U.S. distribution rights to blow up in 1966. And they uh, entered into a three-picture deal with 
uh, Antonioni. One, because they were pretty sure that blow-up was going to be a hit, which it was. And then they were hoping he'd make an American, a kind of hip American film that might get young people back into the habit of going to the movies again. What I think the the executives who saw that film didn't know or didn't bother to find out was that that film was really not like any of his previous stuff. Mm. And because um, it had sort of a central plot line, it was it was a thriller. It even had, you know, an elevator pitch, you know, the a photographer uh, accidentally captures a crime. Um, and then those who committed the crime try to get uh, the negative so that he, the proof is gone. And um, so it's sort of Hitchcockian. And uh, they figured, oh, we'll get him to, to shoot a, an American thriller. <laughs> well, that's really hip, you know. And um, he, he was telling MGM all along, you know, I'm going to make this counterculture film. And uh, they were saying, yeah, sure. And they were thinking, they being MGM, were thinking he was going to make, you know, The Wild Angels or Easy Rider. You know, and he wasn't going to do that. He was never going to do that. And uh, yeah, it is kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> there were never, you know, what, what is it? There was never a meeting of the minds on this at all. So the first thing he did, the first thing he did when he, he was going to make Zabriskie Point was he 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 sort of took a, a, a road trip and he fell in love with the desert. And um he said, you know, this landscape doesn't exist in Europe. There's nothing like this. And um, it's this sort of vast emptiness, you know, a two-hour drive out of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, that became, in a lot of ways, the kind of centerpiece of the movie, um, this idea of a road trip to nowhere. There's uh, something very spiritual about that emptiness. And he felt that 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 somehow spoke to the sort of seeking of youth in in the 1960s. It's interesting to me that he brought on a variety of writers, uh, starting with Sam Shepard. For someone who said that the, you know, people think, I think he said this, people think that the events of the film are actually what the film is about, but that's not true. So I'm wondering what it might have been like to try to write <laughs> yeah, it must have been impossible. Well, Shepard um, uh, didn't actually do anything except write the um, the treatment. Uh, so when he went to um, tell MGM what he was doing, he being Antonioni, uh, he had in hand uh, a kind of scenario written by by Shepard that was about real estate development in mm-hmm. the desert southwest. And that was about it. And that was all Shepard did. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know what was in Antonio's mind, uh, but certainly looking at the movie, it doesn't look like he, he was ever making that. Uh, but that's what he told MGM he was doing. So, and then the other writers, uh, one was his girlfriend, Claire Peplo. Um, one was Tonino Guerra. Tonino Guerra was the screenwriter he had worked with before. Maybe fair to guess that's actually who wrote the script. Antonioni's vision of the America of that time contrasts the cluttered, billboard-strewn streets of L.A. and the desert wasteland of Zabriskie Point, which holds the distinction of being the lowest point in the United States. Along the way, we are witness to violent student protests, 
vulgar representations of commercialization, and the budding romance of a beautiful young couple, Mark and Daria, played by non-actors who are not so incidentally named Mark Frechette and Daria Halprin. And he was shooting it kind of like a neo-realist film because the two actors were not professionals, uh, the two lead actors, and he was playing off of that kind of Italian neo-realist thing where you get a a kind of true realism by working with non-professionals who just sort of act in maybe a more reacting than acting in certain scenarios. Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Kadir Has University in Istanbul, Turkey, Melise Behalil. And the fact that the uh, lead actors are not professionals and he just chose people who were around there, you know, the young people of the time, uh, neither of whom went on to make many other films, but um, they're not really great actors. I mean, they're not actors to begin with. But that, uh, I think, again, has to do with a strategy on Antonioni's part to keep us at a distance, which is his classical cinema. I mean, there are scenes in his other films where we don't even hear the characters' conversations. That's how much of a distance he puts uh, between his audience and his characters. And he does it here with these two characters um, who we don't necessarily relate to, but they're beautiful to look at, too. They're both um, you know, gorgeous people, very energized, uh, even though they might not have a goal in life and they might not know what they're doing necessarily. They're sort of driving around. And I think that sort of works within Antonioni's general style, uh, but of course, the, the the fact that they are quite—I don't necessarily want to say typically American-looking because what is that? But um, they're very movie star-looking people. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of helps us watch the film in a way. I mean, the pigs are on the campus now. Next, what do you want them sitting up in the in the classroom? You want them in your door? You want them uh, standing on the street every time you walk no, out? figure out what was going on with the counterculture, he went to college campuses and talked to, you know, campus radicals, you know, real life for real campus radicals. And then as an advisor on the film, he got um, Kathleen Cleaver, who was married to Eldridge Cleaver, who was the Black Panther, who was living in exile in Tunisia at the time because he was one of America's 10 most wanted. And Kathleen Cleaver was in the Black Panthers herself and was someone that the FBI was sort of routinely following around. So he's making a movie, and an on-set advisor is somebody that the FBI is tracking. Um, and that was the beginning of a lot of things that were wrong with the film, and a lot of things that got MGM very nervous about this new contract with this Italian director. 
The studio's apprehension didn't stop there. The centerpiece of the film, a lovemaking scene between Mark and Daria, which soon transforms into an all-out orgy of naked, twisted flesh in the sand dunes of the desert, was a particular point of contention. The, the film got, well, it, got, it didn't get a rating, so it was rated X. Um, and uh, because of that, that scene, Antonio Mead contracted with this Joseph Chaikin's theater group, who were an avant-garde theater group, and they did a lot of performances where there was no dialogue and it was just movement. So he contracted with them to come out to the desert to shoot this this scene where he would have all these bodies sort of rolling in the sand, and it would be um, kind of the centerpiece of the film. And it was it was infamously called the the loving scene, and. Um, he kept, it became more and more grandiose. So eventually just having that theater group wasn't going to be enough. He needed more people. So then they were bringing in extras. And um, the studio initially sort of sat back while the park rangers at at Death Valley National Park were objecting to, to the scene. And they said they wouldn't permit it to be shot there. And the studio didn't intercede. They didn't try to smooth things over. They were hoping, okay, this will just go away. And then maybe we'll get an R-rated movie. And um, it didn't go away, <laughs> and he got to shoot the scene, and it's pretty amazing to look at, and it's you know it's it, it would it would probably be beyond an R today as well, mm. um, and uh, the studio eventually had to give in because they were, you know they were stuck throwing money and supporting the project. They actually shipped in um, different sand, so they're in you know the sand dunes at Death Valley Park. And they brought in um, uh, smoother sand because the the actors and extras were complaining that the sand was too coarse for them to roll around naked <laughs> in. Yeah, I know. It's sort of funny. So the studio actually had to do this crazy logistical thing just to support a scene they hated and they never wanted in the movie. Um, and then after the movie was complete, uh, there was in uh, California state court, um, an action uh, involving the Mann Act, which is a 1910 uh, law about uh, basically to combat white slavery, which is the uh, taking across state lines of minors for illicit purposes. And so that was that was sort of another another headache that Antonio kind of couldn't believe that that he might be involved in some sort of human trafficking case for trying to shoot a, a movie scene with a bunch of naked people not actually having sex, but mm-hmm. making believe that they're having sex. Uh, so that's quite a story. Uh, so well, it's quite a story, and <laughs> and, and uh, it was just yet another headache for um, for him and for MGM. And in fact, he left the country to to finish work on the movie because of it. And it didn't really go away um, clearly un- until over a decade later when uh, there's a case called California v. Freeman. I mean, this is a little obscure, but um, it was a court case that, that basically said that performing in an erotic film, either real sex acts or simulated sex acts, um, could not be uh, deemed prostitution. Mm. And so it wasn't until a 1980s case that this whole question of taking people across state lines to perform in a movie in which there's an erotic scene 
might be deemed um, uh, an illegal an illegal act. Um, and for an Italian, I'm sure it seemed like, wow, that's quintessentially American, you know, this kind of idiotic Puritanism. Before Zabriskie Point reached theaters, its curious and troubled production made it a notorious property. And in the midst of its eventual release, it didn't help that its two leading actors spoke less than admirably about the film and its director on the widely watched Dick Cavett show. You're not recommending your own film? I'm not. That's certainly a relief on a show, isn't it, to have someone come on and yeah. non-plug their film? No, I don't want a non-plugger. I just say there's a lot in it that, um, that I was disappointed in. And uh, there's a lot that was attempted that wasn't achieved. Following the ill-fated release of the film, Mark and Daria carried on a real-life relationship and moved into a commune together. Following the dissolution of that relationship, Daria went on to marry Dennis Hopper, and today she enjoys a career in arts education and therapy. Mark's fate was far less enchanting. After participating in a botched arm robbery, he was sent to prison for as many as 15 years. Not long into his sentence, he was killed in a freakish weightlifting accident. You know, the film basically sits for a year, and then they, they show it in a handful of theaters and just let it disappear. And it gets yeah. killed by the critics, which doesn't help or didn't help critics who had so embraced Antonioni's earlier films which frankly are, are, are similar in a lot of ways they boy did they hate Zabriskie Point and, and so it became impossible in the end for MGM to promote it because they couldn't promote it as as a, a, a kind of fun teen picture because it's sure not that and then they couldn't promote it as an art film because the critics said it was bad do you think some of that was kind of uh, the gall of this guy to come over to our shores and try to tell us what we are? Yeah. And I think it was definitely the studios just didn't know how to play the counterculture. You know, they were they wanted a counterculture film then in the end the counterculture characters become part of the establishment. So, you know, the counterculture is just a fad. And here's a movie saying no. It, the, and uh, the kids aren't alright. And um the distance between the establishment and this new generation is vast and impossible to um, impossible to bridge. Jacob Horner, played by actor Stacy Keach, is a fresh college graduate who embarks on his next chapter, the one where he's expected to define his place and purpose in life. As he stands by the tracks at a train station, awaiting transport to his future, he's flooded with visions of the atrocities that have come before, political assassinations, senseless wars, genocide, the world he's essentially inherited. So traumatic is this realization 
that it renders him catatonic. Don't worry about me. Those are the first moments of End of the Road, and they constitute one of the most dazzling opening sequences of the era. Released on February 10th, the film is, in many respects, a countercultural masterpiece, a rambunctious and free-spirited snapshot of the time in which it was made. But it's largely fallen under the radar. It was the first feature film for actor Stacy Keach, one of the first for actor James Earl Jones, and the first for legendary cinematographer Gordon Willis. The film is infused with the spirit of firsts, of fresh, untainted talents who weren't afraid to push themselves into dangerous territory. You know, it's, it represents the road not taken in um, a certain kind of... Um, you know, new American cinema. The, the inability to confront what, your environment, what was going on around you, going into a catatonic state, being numb, I think that that was very much a part of, the, uh, of that era. It's not the kind of film you, you start yammering or just click on your phone and you start doing other stuff. You're pretty much shaken by it. It was lovely. It was lo I mean, there are lovely, lovely parts of it, but it was a shocker. Definitely a shocker. Following his fall into Catatonia, Jacob is taken in by Dr. D, played by James Earl Jones, and whisked away to a conditioning camp, where he is subject to a series of experiments. Why do you nod like that? Like what? Just now you nodded. So... I was simply acknowledging what you said before. Acknowledging the fact of what I said, or merely the fact that I said it? Well, I have no reason to doubt you from either standpoint. Are you afraid of offending me by not agreeing with what I said? No, I agree with it. I see no reason to disagree with it. Really? What parts do you agree with? Which statements? What interests you, Honor? Well, I took my master's degree in English literature. Ah, ah, ah. No biography of Jacob Horner. No history. What thing interests you? Once he's quote-unquote cured, he returns into society, nabs a teaching position, and stumbles into a romantic relationship with his colleague's wife, played by Dorothy Tristan. I told him how we've made love in minute detail. I blamed everything on you. Okay. This scenario is further complicated when the wife becomes pregnant. What do you say, Rennie? If I had this baby, I might grow to love it. I want to get rid of it. If I don't get rid of this baby, I'll do it. I'll kill myself. Rennie, I will find someone. Jacob enlists Dr. D to perform what is essentially 
a backstreet abortion. Now you must be quiet or you'll upset my patience. You gave her 75 milligrams? Yes, doctor. Sufficient. Fasten the strap. You should have done that before. Actress Dorothy Tristan. That was hard. Mm. It's hard to do. I, 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 I was used to working very personally uh, with my parts. And uh, I took it very hard. There's lots of things in the film that make people uncomfortable. Author of A Grand Guy, The Art and Life of Terry Southern, Lee Hill. I know because I've I, 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 I've introduced a couple of times uh, at a public screening, and people <laughs> have very you know marked reactions to that film. You know, they, they get really upset. The film's life began as a book by novelist John Barth, which was initially released in 1958 and later revised in 67. Screenwriter Terry Southern the maverick talent who had worked alongside Stanley Kubrick to punch up the funny in Dr. Strangelove, and would later go on to capture the spirit of the counterculture with his scripted contributions to Easy Rider, found great appeal in the book, and introduced it to Aram Avakian, a noted film editor who had previously made his mark as the cutter on Mickey One, Lilith, and The Miracle Worker. Avakian was eager to break out as a film director, and End of the Road seemed like the property he needed to make that happen. Once the screenplay was written, Southern and Avakian approached Max Rabb for financing. Rabb had dabbled a bit in production, but his full-time preoccupation was The Villager, a fashion line he co-ran with his brother, which essentially defined Ivy League preppy fashions of the day. Together, these forces crafted their own anti-establishment outfit far outside the Hollywood system. End of the Road was this attempt to buy people who already had their foot in the kind of Hollywood system but were very frustrated by it, not unlike the way that Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda were frustrated with just making biker movies. Um, uh, and it was a chance for them to kind of have more autonomy and gain more control. I think what happened in the case of End of the Road is um, uh, it was a very it was a very challenging, uh, almost Brechtian kind of storyline compared to something like Easy Rider. Um, they were taking a, a novel that was already very saturated in a kind of late fifties uh, nonconformist sensibility. It was a campus novel. And then they were trying to transform it into a kind of something about, you know, the various uh, therapies going on in the 60s, you know, and how people were discarding, you know, um, philosophies, you know, on almost a, a monthly or a yearly basis. And so the so end of the road became this kind of uh, strange uh, mashup of, of, of ideas and sensibilities, you know, it's... Mm. Uh, and, 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 of course, they were also very affected by the year that it was made, 1968, you know, you know, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, you had riots, the, anti, the anti-war movement was coming, 
to a very kind of radical uh, point. And there are all kinds of other things going on in the culture, seemingly all at once. Actor Stacy Keach. End of the Road was, uh, it, it was, it was a miscalculated film and, and way ahead of its time. Uh, John Barth wrote something that was very intense and Terry Southern transformed it, transformed it into a, a movie script that Aram Avakian, the director, embraced and but he wanted to do something very sort of avant-garde. And uh, he wanted to use multiple images uh, in, the, in the scenes with James Earl Jones as the psychiatrist, Jacob Horner. Those, uh, those scenes uh, and the backdrops of those scenes uh, was really way ahead of its time. Perhaps the key to beginning to understand the implications of End of the Road lies in one of the final lines of dialogue from Southern's previous script for Easy Rider. You know, Billy, we blew it. Acclaimed photojournalist and daughter of Aram Avakian and actress Dorothy Tristan, Alexandra Avakian. Things had started to turn sour with the love and peace and all that. And with Altamont, for example, Mm. uh, and Manson and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Manson, all that stuff. And, and things were going awry in the love and peace generation. Right. Mm. Even though we were all, we were all of us hipsters. Yeah. But the film, the film feels like it's infused with that feeling, of truly. That's part they, of what it's about. Yeah. Dad said, I remember he said to me, he said, you know, the sixties weren't all good. There were there were a lot of bad people out there. Filmmaker and son of Terry Southern, Niall Southern. With End of the Road. I think Avakian saw that as a way to comment a little more uh, poignantly on an era that had not delivered the social change that they were hoping it would or that that seemed to be in the air. Um, Instead, you had the birth of the me generation. You know, it was the birth of like, I'm in it for me and everyone's an individual and we're all just trying to get what we can. And I think the the abortion scene for for Avakian was very much like the end of an era that speaks to self-indulgence as well. You have, you know, a guy who's catatonic. Okay, that was his condition in the film, Stacy Keach. And he's, yeah, that's his reaction to what's going on in the culture. It's all just too much. That then, you know, then he's revitalized by the doctor and sort of given these rote sort of ways to behave like like an individual and he gets a woman in trouble and uh you know it's 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 complicated for sure like life is complicated um he had a love affair with a married woman and could you say that's self-indulgent well yeah they she was unhappy in her marriage but in in the end uh life was stacked up against them because why abortion's illegal hello and, you know, you had these abortions being provided by 
people who uh, didn't exactly know what they were doing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a very harrowing scene for sure. There was no doubt that End of the Road dealt with hot-button, taboo subjects of the time. Months before its release, its provocations drew the attention of Life magazine, which ran a staggering nine-page profile of the film and its makers. The movie was even going to nab the cover of the issue, until it was discovered that Paul McCartney was, in spite of persistent rumors, actually alive and well. In the profile, which was penned by Richard Merriman, the journalist who famously conducted Marilyn Monroe's final interview, the film is described as follows. More than a movie, End of the Road is Aramavakian's intensely personal plea against pervasive violence in America. It will overwhelm, horrify, mystify, and antagonize. These words proved to be prophetic, especially when it came to the reaction of the ratings board. We thought at the time that the film was going to be controversial, but we didn't, we didn't have any idea that it was going to be rated X by virtue of the fact that the abortion scene was just, it was too much for people to take. And people w- w- left the theaters, you know, getting sick to their stomachs. Uh, it was not, a, it, was, it, was, it was very d- difficult to take. We're not even sure why End of the Road is rated X. It could be the ambig- it could even be the ambiguous American flag imagery that is throughout the film. Uh, you know, it's like almost a bleeding flag. It's a flag that Stacy Keach is wearing. He's hanging it out to dry. Um, it's but then there is also overtly anti-Vietnam imagery. Uh, that alone, at that time, I think it was Judith Christ at the time who was a very powerful critic wrote in Q magazine, I believe, and she said. Uh, Go see Patton instead. Your country needs you. This was the sentiment at the time. Go see Patton. You know, the George C. Scott film that's very much about a general in charge who's shaking things up and, you know, you should never question him. Well, but of course, the the, the board that um, decides these things never really has to declare, uh, you know, what it is that, that triggers them, right? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the narrative that's out there more than any is the maybe the abortion se- sequence or uh, the uh, there's a brief image of a chicken uh, involved in counter. yeah well the, yeah that's there those two scenes are separate we might say this film isn't like totally crazy and out there but you don't have yeah there is a chicken fucking scene beep uh yeah that is um but you see it from behind to be fair right it's mostly in the sound and the feathers flying and there's a poet, Joel Oppenheimer, the, the um, you know, viewer wouldn't know that, but he looks like a crazed poet uh, or crazed person anyway. But yeah, I would think that that would, the bestiality, even still today, that will get you in big time trouble. Uh, I even walked in on the, the guy fucking the chicken. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was a kid, you know, and I, I, was, I just wanted to see the filming. I, I was used to being silent on any film set whether it was my mom's or my dad's and uh, so i i just wanted to see what they were doing (laughs) poor daddy he pushed me out of the like gently he said no 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 you can't come in here 
and I, but I did get a glimpse of it. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that. the day you want to be on set. That that day right there. Right. <laughs> Miraculously, in spite of the backstreet abortions and chicken fucking, I never thought I'd utter those words in the same sentence. End of the Road was released exactly as it was intended to be seen, with one glaring exception. You know that the distributor, which was United Artists, they added on to the ending because they wanted it to have a cheery ending. Hmm. And, yeah. And there was nothing that could do about it. Um, Because he was working freely, you know, he did, he never imagined that they would do that. So he was he was horrified by that, and it remained. And um, that's the only thing that really, really, really bothered him. It's been fifty years since End of the Road's initial unveiling but it's definitely enjoyed a vital underground life in the years since. Theatrical audiences might have been sparse in most regions, but in the bigger metropolitan areas, the film caught on with the youth, who saw it so often and knew the script so intimately that they would speak the dialogue back to the screen. In 2012, writer-director Steven Soderbergh arranged a DVD release of the film, onto which he attached a short documentary he produced to celebrate its existence. Soderbergh exclaimed, that's what independent film should feel like. But even if you'd never heard of the film prior to that DVD release, or this episode of our series, you might be surprised how Aramavakian's End of the Road managed to penetrate a segment of the popular film culture of which everyone is familiar. Um, you know, he had worked with Francis Coppola a few times, mm-hmm. and uh, around came the Godfather, and it was Francis doing it. And I remember Francis at our house. We lived in Grandview at that time, Grandview, New York, on the Hudson. And um, I remember him coming with his wife and little kids, and... <laughs> He asked Dad to be the supervising editor on The Godfather. So Dad, you know, introduced him to Gordon and a team of protégés he had. Yeah. And Francis um, Francis took all of them. <laughs> yes, he did. And this is the thing that um, Bob Evans, I can say this now because he's passed. <laughs> So he had two notorious um, producers that worked with him, and he sent them to our house. And these guys said, you know what, we'd like you to pr- replace um, replace Coppola. He said, I can't. I'm his friend. Mm-hmm. And this was after End of the Road. So he said, no. 
And then Francis got the Oscar for um, Patton. What was it? Yeah, Patton. And of course, then they wanted him. Few cinematographers have produced a more distinctive body of work than Freddie Francis. He won two Oscars during his career, one for Sons and Lovers and the other for 1989's Glory. He photographed David Lynch's Dune, The Elephant Man, and The Straight Story, Martin Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear, and the 1961 supernatural mainstay, The Innocents. He was also a director of some note, occasionally helming episodic television and a series of horror titles for Hammer Films and Amicus Productions. Two of his directorial projects were released in 1970, the infamous Trog, which we'll discuss in a later episode, and Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny, and Gurley, an unhinged comic British horror film that was released in the U.S. under the abbreviated title Gurley on February 12th of that year. Until his death in 2007, Francis consistently claimed that Gurley was his personal favorite among all the films he directed. I'm the Mumsy. I'm only the Nanny. My name's Sonny. My name's Gurley. Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny, and Gurley are a happy family. They live in a big old house to which they bring their friends, like Soldier and Number Five, and especially New Friend. Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny, and Gurley are a happy family. Together, they play lots of games. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. The family that plays together slays together. Do you think you could glue his head on again, Nanny? Gurley revolves around the exploits of a wealthy British family, a mom, son, daughter, and housekeeper, who reside in a gothic countryside mansion. Like most families, they share a tradition. Only their tradition involves the kidnapping of unwitting subjects, who are then challenged to integrate into this twisted clan, and when they inevitably fail to follow the rules, a member of the family blissfully disposes of them. What the hell do I do now? You're safe with us. We're a happy family. Come on. Eat up. The mumsy likes having people in. Don't you like being looked after? That's naughty, mister. You're going to need to learn the rules. Conflicts ensue when the family takes in a new victim, a character named New Friend, who turns out to be a lot more cunning than they could have expected. He strategizes and connives his way through the family's weaknesses, particularly those of the daughter of the family, Gurley, who is clearly blooming into her own sexuality. His seduction of her creates great conflict within the family structure, especially when it comes time for his inevitable sacrifice. We've still got friend in two. Not for much longer. He's being sent to the angels. 
Who says so? He hasn't had a trial. He won't need one. Not when I tell Mumsy and Nanny certain things I know. What sort of thing? Mind your own business, fry your own fish. Don't poke your nose in my clean dish. <laughs> Come on, out the way. <laughs> Listen. What? You know that boy? What boy is that? You know that boy. What boy? That boy, Tony Chestnut. Tony Chestnut? Who's Tony? Tony! Me! Girly enthusiast. Darren Partridge. Brian Comport, who wrote the uh, the screenplay, he, he obviously based it on Maisie Moscow's um, not particularly edifying Happy Family, um, the, the play which he and um, Freddie Francis went to see. And, you know, they didn't think it was very good, but they thought this would, could make a great movie. And he combined that with a, a very interesting book called The Law and Language of Schoolchildren by uh, um, uh, Peter and Iona Opie. And in it, it's it's again, it's all the, the phrases and all the um, the codes that school children use. There are things they, they speak at a very primeval sort of pagan level, really a pre-pagan, very primeval sort of the darkness of childhood, I think, is also what it reveals, which is always a very uncomfortable thing for anyone. Um, mm. And it's one of these films where if you if you just sit and read the synopsis, you know, you it's like, oh, it sounds horrendous. You know, it sounds awful, sounds really crude and quite horrific. But the film is so subtle, so multi-layered and with such a such a good cast and a very, very good screenplay and direction. Every element of the film is is, you know, as a, as a tour de force of the filmmaker's art. Understandably, having manifested from the vision of master cinematographer Freddie Francis, one of the film's greatest strengths is its photography. But Francis was not the DP on Gurley. That task fell upon the shoulders of David Muir. We had an absolute understanding from the start. Uh, he'd seen a lot of the things that I'd shot. Uh, and I'd seen I think, just about everything he'd shot. Uh, so we had sort of mutual respect. In the pre-production period, I... Uh, imagined he'd give me a very detailed briefing, you know, exactly how he wanted each scene to be, you know, I imagined going through each page of the, of the script. <laughs> all he said to me was, um, oh, you've read the script, it's all in there, you know what to do. When I pressed him further, he said, well, mm, no matter how dark the scene, I always want to see the eyes. And uh, th that, I think, is a, a really a very wise storytelling uh, factor. You know, the, that old folk poem about eyes are the mirror of the soul is pretty true, and it certainly works on the screen. I mean, you talked about the eyes being the window of the soul. I was thinking, you know, the soul of this movie is, I mean, it's wacky. It's uh, it really goes to extremes. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of portraying that element of it uh, in regards to, to, to camera movement or kind of a, a, a acceleration of the camera work in any way, I mean, what, what kind of considerations went into that? Um, Freddie had a thing about tracking shots at that stage. I don't quite know why, but that that was what he was into and. Uh, I think 
Just about every shot was a tracking shot. The film is put together right from the opening credits, and I, th I think they've got to be the most beautiful opening credits of any film. Um, the, the long sort of panning shot, the crane shot, if you like, going through the, uh, the toys in, uh, at Oakley Court, in the uh, dilapidated Oakley Court, as it was at the time, um, really is quintessentially Francis. Good morning, Mumsy. Oh, good morning, Nanny. Six o'clock already. What a lovely morning it is. Oh, why haven't you brought the dear children to give me my good morning kiss? Master Sonny and Miss Gurley were up very early, Mumsy. They're off playing. They do love their game, so found some new friends, most likely. The opportunity to film Gurley almost entirely at the historic Oakley Court was a big draw for Freddie Francis. It was a location he had worked at previously during his days with Hammer Films. Built in 1859, Oakley Court would go on to become one of the most photographed cinematic locations in the region, that region being the parish of Bray in the county of Berkshire. Many audiences would likely recognize it best from its prominence in the cult hit The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, I, I screened the film a couple of times at Oakley Court, which is, of course, where 99% of the film is actually set, um, which is now a, a five-star hotel. It's a very, very nice place, um, but it's still completely recognisable. Virtually every room still looks much the same as it did in, in Gurley and in, in many other films. And um, uh, really, the only original member of the uh, the, the crew was uh, that I could that I could get hold of was Maggie Pinhorn, who was the art director, a uh, very, very lovely lady who um, uh, we managed to track down. And uh, she she uh, kindly attended and was telling us really what it was like to work on the film. And she said that it was it was a fairly dismal place to work at the time, the, the setting, because you've probably seen Oakley Court in 100 films. Um, it's a very famous Gothic revival mansion. She said, but obviously at the time when Hammer were using it, Hammer just being around the corner in Bray, of course, and many other many other uh, production companies, uh, it was completely dilapidated. So actually working in it, I think, was fairly unpleasant. It had been for sale for years and not nobody wanted it. So um, the producers uh, hired the, um, the place for, I think it was four or five months um, on the ground floor. At the back, the art department had moved into a big space and had it all very cosy. They had their own heating. And um, one, they also had their own private uh, staircase, uh, what, what must have been the servant's staircase uh, going up to the, the next level. Um, so one day I, I needed a, a prop to to put in front of a lamp, so I dashed down to the the um, art department, and picked up the prop, and I saw this staircase leading upwards. I ran up the first flight, and then my legs started to feel heavy, and the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and you know the traditional chill went down my spine, and. Um, I had this feeling of cold fear, and I, I'm a, a total sort of uh, psychic skeptic or whatever you call it. But this was this was too much for me, so I uh, t turned around, hurried down the stairs, 
back across the ground floor art department, out the side door into the wind. Um, but even that wind was preferable to the, to the chill I'd felt on the stairs. I ran round to the front door, up the wide main staircase, and I never tried to take those stairs again. And I never mentioned the incident, but I didn't want to look like a fool. But months later, um, on another shoot, I was chatting to Mike Basto, who had been in Gurley's art department, and I discovered that he'd had the same problem, that none of the art department would use those stairs. And that's pretty incredible because it's probably saved about five or six minutes you going up the, these little back stairs rather than running around to the front and up the main staircase. But nobody used this, um, <laughs> this wow. uh, shortcut. And I, I imagine that that's why the house had remained on the market for so long and um, fallen so derelict. I guess the... Uh, Maybe there were ghosts that, that even the real estate agents couldn't chase away. <laughs> uh, there have been rumors of it being haunted. There have been rumors of uh, witches holding black masses on the grounds of Oakley Courts. Uh, at one point, there was, uh, was either a pastor or a priest who referred to it as one of the most evil places in England. Uh, I personally found it very lovely myself. Preston Fassel is an award-winning journalist and author who penned the first published biography of Vanessa Howard for the spring 2004 issue of Scream magazine. Miss Howard portrayed the title role in Gurley, and her performance stands as the most unforgettable highlight of the film. Vanessa Howard just, uh, just captivated me because you can tell that she really honestly believes somewhere deep down she's going to win the Oscar for this thing. Gurley is the film because it is the movie where she gets to hit every single note that she was capable of. And that's something that really amazes me about it is even some of our greatest actors and actresses do not get to hit every single note in every single film that they make. Uh, you know, they maybe get to be the passionate bad guy or they get to be this role or that role. And you really see her do everything in this movie. She is sinister and cunning and she is completely mad and out of her mind and she is completely in control of the situation and she is a lover and she is a killer and she is this wide-eyed innocence and she is this black hole of evil and she moves between all of these things so smoothly and so naturally that it doesn't seem wrong at all it seems perfectly natural and normal and she just does it with such a aplomb uh, she had quite a, a sort of musical stage background so she'd appeared in reviews she appeared with the mitchell singers which was a very influential uh, quite a few um, members of the mitchell singers were later to appear in film and tv um, a lot of them had their their nascent years in the mitchell singers and she she has this sort of almost Buster Keaton-esque ability to do really big movement. You know, she, she uses her body in a very dancer's, in, in, in the, the style that a theatrical dancer would use. It is very exaggerated, but then she switches and does everything by very subtle expression, you know, almost as, as subtle as, as Michael Kitchen or Alec Guinness in 
playing George Smiley, where it's all done with the eyes. And it's a very it's a, it's a real you don't see that very often in in one performer. Yeah. And, and, and we don't have, you know, 30 years of, of work of hers that we can look back on and, and we can. So it feels even more kind of enigmatic. Where did this performance come from? Who is this? You know, it's a, but she is so, uh, so seductive and beautifully expressive, but it all feels grounded in the reality of that character. Yes, exactly. And it's, you know, it's a very weird character yes. to be, <laughs> it's a real anti-heroine, you know, because, again, if you see it on paper, I mean, she, what does she commits at least three murders um, during the film. And yet you're rooting for her, even though she's she's clearly completely bananas and a psychopath. She is the heroine of the piece. Mm-hmm. She's you're rooting for her. You want her to to um, to prevail, really. Let go of my hand. I said, let go of my hand. You've not been learning the rules. Rules can be broken. I thought you were trying to run for it. No. You must never try to run for it. Not a second time. Because if you try to run for it, we catch you. I'm not joking. We put you on trial. Probably this time. Then what? If we found you guilty of trying to run for it, trying a second time. If we caught you breaking one of the rules. We'd send you to the angels. You wouldn't like that. After you watch Gurley, it's difficult not to root for Vanessa Howard herself to prevail. But that wasn't to be the case at least not in terms of her desire to build a long and productive film career. The low attendance in the UK for Gurley resulted from the swells of controversy surrounding one moment in the film that lasts all of three seconds. The moment takes place in a zoo. Sunny feeds her sister a candy, and she proceeds to seductively wrap her lips around his finger. There's an implied possible incestuous relationship, or or that she desires an inc- that basically she's a she's a sex maniac, and she's you know even her own brother is not beyond the uh, the, uh, <laughs> the her sights, and that of course triggered a huge conservative backlash at the time. All that was missing the point of the film, and. Um, there's no coincidence that it's set in London Zoo. I think it's set there because it's, it's, it's kind of hinting at the bestial underlying nature of humanity, if we like. Gurley got buried at the UK cinema when it came out. So it premiered in the United Kingdom under the name of Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny and Gurley. And it was uh, Ronald J. Khan Productions who uh, made the movie. And after seeing the, uh, the dailies on this and then seeing the final product, they really thought that they had not just a horror hit on their hands, but they thought that Vanessa Howard was going to be this bonafide screen queen. And it just so happened that Gurley came out at the same time as another film called Goodbye Gemini. that has got Judy Geese in it. And Goodbye Gemini is about a pair of twins, Judy Geeson, and then Martin Potter plays her brother. And the brother is in love with his sister. 
and is obsessed with the idea of the two of them entering into a romantic relationship because he thinks that they are actually two halves of the same person and that if they become lovers, then they will like complete this whole and they get involved in all of this murder and psychosexual intrigue and swinging London. And so you've got Gurley up at the box office, which is about this quasi maybe kind of sort of incestuous family there's that implication with Sonny and Gurley at the beginning with the candy and it's just this movie about this warped family unit and then you've got another warped family unit over here with a brother wanting to have sex with a sister and there was this big moral backlash it was look at these movies that are playing in British cinemas right now here is what Swinging London has brought us. This is everything that is wrong with youth culture and everything that is wrong with horror culture. And very quickly, these movies disappear from the box office. Goodbye, Gemini and Gurley are gone. So really a lot of the uh, blowback from that ended up indirectly falling on Vanessa Howard's shoulders. Crestfallen that her career had stalled, Vanessa retired from the business in the early 70s. She married Rocky producer Robert Chardoff and became an unassuming and, by all accounts, personally fulfilled housewife. So distant were her movie stardom ambitions that many of her friends were unaware of her previous life. But meanwhile, unbeknownst to her, a rabid base of cult movie enthusiasts were beginning to rally around the misunderstood girly. An interesting thing is that it ended up coming to the United States and playing the grindhouse and exploitation film and drive-in circuit simply as girly, and it gets a positive reception over here. Uh, Variety even ends up writing this positive piece about it of all places. And it did fairly well with the 42nd Street crowd and with the driving crowd. And uh, as I found out in the beginning and came back around to later, it ended up getting into the hands of the U.S. Armed Forces somehow. And there were real circulating on bases for movie night for American soldiers. And so it, it doesn't become the spectacular phenomenon in the United States, but it does become something of a, a brief cult phenomenon over here in the early 70s. And Vanessa Howard does not know this. Uh, she never knew until much later in life uh, what kind of reception it had gotten in the States. But, she, but before she did pass, you're saying that she did have a sense that there was this rabid kind of underground appreciation of her? Yes, and uh, unfortunately, it was in some of the last years of her life. Uh, Actually, at the time she passed away, she was in uh, negotiations with uh, Scorpion Releasing, which was the uh, DVD reissue house that uh, owns, as far as I know, currently owns the rights to uh, Gurley on DVD. And she was trying to get to their studios to record a commentary for the film. And uh, she eventually ended up passing away from complications of a COPD. And at the time they wanted her to record, it had uh, gotten to such an advanced state that she was uh, not well enough to uh, travel by plane to, uh, to go record a commentary. In retrospect, it's not surprising that Gurley was not an overnight sensation. After all, it has all the makings of an underground cult hit. Even those audiences that haven't seen the film yet have likely witnessed its reverberations throughout film culture. You can see not-so-subtle callbacks to key moments in the film, in other movies, like The Shining 
and fatal attraction. But the generations of audiences that have discovered the film since its failed initial release have fallen in love with the enchanting and horrifying dimensions of Howard's lead performance, the Looney Tunes tone of its dysfunctional family portrait, and the deceptive depth of its messaging. I mean, there are so many layers mm. to to the movie and so many messages on it. You know, it's been compared to imperialism. It was uh, considered as a... Um, you know, a, 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 an expression of the, the issues with the Vietnam War at the time. Um, I believe it was initially its first screening was actually at Harvard University, which shows how you know, it was very much an academic exercise. Freddie Francis considered it as a as a comic horror academic exercise. And it really was, a you know, a, a, an, an allegory of so many things, British class structure, bullying, sex the sex battle the the happy family in the uh, mumsy nanny sunny and girly house is you know one element of that is that um that that dichotomy between the the existing older if you like the older generation's power and the younger generation's sexual power and, and subversion of that it i mean you could go on forever about what the film means i think it's it's you know it's almost infinite how you how you interpret it which is another another part of its another part of its appeal another point of interest for big movie fans with, with Gurley is the fact that it's directed by someone who in later years would become one of the great cinematographers uh freddie francis that was his baby uh, this was the one movie where he had complete creative control over it, where he worked with Brian Comport on the script, and the script was exactly what he wanted. And there's not a shot or a moment in that movie that's not what Freddie Francis wanted it to be. And that was his absolute favorite film of his own because it was totally his baby. It was Freddie Francis's masterpiece in, you know, in the traditional sense, as in it was, um, you know, like an apprentice proving themselves, proving what they could absolutely do at the height of their powers. You know, he went on to make some fantastic films like mm. The Elephant Man. But um, I think that demonstrates his, you know, he was given... And virtually everyone in it, I think, is given free reign. You know, Vanessa Howard's given free reign to act as she chose, really, and, and completely plays to her strengths. The other actors are, are clearly seem to be enjoying themselves. The cinematography, the music, and Freddie's direction, I think the whole thing is is a, a great um, spree. It's a great, great, uh, you know, um, celebration of, of that kind of artistic freedom. Vanessa Howard is girly. And Gurley takes up where baby Jane leaves off. Everyone's dying to meet Gurley. Rated R. On February 25th, 1970, audiences got their first glimpse of one of the biggest movie stars in the world. They just didn't realize it until much later. Arnold Schwarzenegger is coming your way on a comet from out of the sky. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Magnificent as Hercules. Before he became a global cinematic megastar with films like The Terminator, True Lies, and Predator, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a Mr. Universe champion whose dreams of a career in movies seemed unlikely at best. 
But in 1969, he would have his chance with Hercules in New York. It would also represent the first feature film opportunity for its director, Arthur Allen Seidelman. Um, I did a play in New York, uh, a revival of Awake and Sing by Clifford Odets. Um, and one of the producers was a gentleman named Willard Goodman, who was a, a, um, a film UPM. And Willard came to me one day and said he had been offered a film job for a comedy that was going to be shot in New York um, with the then Mr. Universe. And would I be interested in directing it? And it would pay $1,000 a week for nine weeks. I said, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, that you know, as a, a struggling Broadway, off-Broadway stock director, $1,000 a week was nirvana. Written by Aubrey Wisberg, Hercules in New York tracks the exploits of the Roman god as he makes his way through New York City. Needless to say, extreme culture clashes ensue. Along his journey, he befriends a geeky man of slight build as his cohort, falls in love, and begins to feel an affinity for life on Earth. I, I decided I could make a funny movie. Mm -hmm. um, I, had not, I had not met Arnold. I met him a short time thereafter, and he was a pleasure and delight and uh, a, a, a very diligent, hardworking uh, focused guy, and uh, and so we struck up a, a very pleasant r rapport. Arnold Stang, whom I cast in the other role, was uh, a joy to work with, just a sweet guy. And I peopled the film with uh, with a lot of my stage, uh, in fact, all all of my stage uh, uh, actors, all people that had worked for me in theater. Um, and uh, but I, I decided I could make something funny out of out of this. The strange thing that happened um, was that the, the script was written by a gentleman named Aubrey Wisberg. I had not met Mr. Wisberg, who was uh, located on the West Coast. He came out maybe second, third, fourth day of shooting. And uh, and we went to the dailies the day he arrived. And one of the sequences that we were looking at the dailies was a, one of the physical comedy sequences that that I had uh, that I had designed. And people in the in the screening room were laughing, and I was pleased. On the way out, <laughs> I was in my seat, and people were leaving the screening room, and I was writing a couple of notes, etc. And uh, Mr. Wisberg stopped by my my seat in the screening room and said, if I hear another laugh in this film, you're fired. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I, I immediately said, Willard, we have to talk. <laughs> he wasn't aware that he had written a comedy? <laughs> no. <laughs> I am tired of the same old phrases. The same old things. Tired or not, you're staying here. My mother may have been a mortal, but you, sirs, my father, are gods. I will discuss this no further. Does this mean I have sirs' permission to leave? It means you will stay, and I don't wish to hear another word on the subject. I won't stay. You are trying my patience, Hercules. You are trying mine. Heed my words. Nobody will stop me. How dare you address such remarks to your father? 
obviously, yes. I mean, Schwarzenegger, when it, now we know who Schwarzenegger is. He's one of the big titans of movie actors of the past 30 years, movie stars. But back then, yes. he was rather green. So what what were his particular needs? Rather green. Was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, his particular, first of all, he was a hard worker, diligent, serious, arrived, totally prepared. What he needed was relax, mm. be yourself. Don't worry about the fact that you have an accent. Don't worry about the just be simple and honest and truthful and be yourself. He needed confidence. He needed, which sounds weird when you, I mean, I, I tell Arnold that for the first week I knew him, I spent all the time talking to his right arm because it was as big as any other person that I would talk to. But uh, it, it sounds strange to say that a man so physically impressive would need confidence, but he did need confidence. He needed to feel at home on a movie set. He needed to know that he was doing everything well. Um, and he needed guidance. Um, but he was a pleasure to work with. I mean, he was just uh, and remains a, a very delightful human being. He's got tremendous energy, commitment. Um, when Arnold sets out to do something, he sets out to do it well. There was never there was never a complaint. He, he would never arrive a minute late. He never would say, oh, do I have to do it again? It just would do whatever you asked and would do it with total commitment. For much of the film, Arnold was paired with another Arnold, that Arnold being Arnold Stang, the veteran of stage, screen, and radio, whose previous film credits included It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and The Man with the Golden Arm. Who are these men over there? Oh, they're just athletes training. Athletes? Hey, hey, college guys, yeah. Hmm. What do you mean? You think you could do better? What do you mean? These guys happen to be champions. Ha. Nobody can beat them. Ha. Hey, wait, wait, where are you going? Over there. What for? To show them how to throw the discos. Oh, no, 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 you gotta stay here. I, I, you can't go button in there. They will not like me to instruct them. No, it's just for college guys. No outsiders allowed. I am Hercules. I mean, this is an, un, an unlikely duo. <laughs> The same least. So how how did you uh, cultivate that relationship, and how did they get on with each other? They got they they enjoyed each other. Um, I uh, I encouraged their differences. I uh, I encouraged them to enjoy each other. Um, and uh, and and both Arnolds were really good guys, and uh, and would get a kick out of each other have lunch together, you know, mm. encourage them to to be relaxed with each other. Um, and they were. Arnold Stang, who God knows had ex experienced every aspect of show business, from vaudeville to burlesque to film to television to whatever, um, made it his business to help Schwarzenegger relax. Um, he would compliment him. He would ask him if Oh, am I in the right am I in the right 
place for you? Do you need me to move over? He would always be off camera feeding him his lines. They just they were they were good to each other, and and I think it showed. And your and Hercules in New York was actually shot in New York. I mean, yes. if you see New York in a title nowadays, it's not always the case that it's shot in New York. But back then, it, it was. Uh, tell me about the experience of shooting New York in, in 1969. My uh, major accomplishment in that film was shooting the chariot race in Times Square, which mm-hmm. we did, which I look back as a, as a, 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 ma- a major feat accomplished. We shot it at, you know, early, early in the morning, just just at sunrise. And uh, and we had the cooperation of the police department, of everybody. But we were on an exceedingly low budget. I think the film was made for $350,000. I mean, if you look at some of this or listen to some of the scenes shot in Central Park, you can hear the traffic going by the scene of the gate, the gates of Hades with uh, a tiny elk. I think you can hear the traffic. But we had tremendous cooperation, and I had a wonderful cast of people. I'm open the scene in, in the airplane with the two women when, when Hercules goes by the window. Those are two dear friends of mine, Iris Whitney, who was a brilliant, wonderful, accomplished stage actress, um, and and a delightful lady named Viola Swain, who was also a dear friend from theater. So I just I had I had I was surrounded by friends. Um, I was surrounded by a very helpful police department, um, which if I asked for something, they went out of their way to help me have it. Um, uh, New York has become a very difficult place to shoot because, not because you don't get tremendous cooperation, but the rule of shooting in New York these days is don't plan to move across town in the middle of the day. Um, you you can't do it. Your 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 schedule will be eaten up just by the move. It's just a difficult place to get around, mm. and there's nothing that anybody can do to solve that. Um, so it, that's that's the challenge of New York. It's not getting the shot, but getting to the next shot. When Hercules in New York finished shooting and was ready for release, it still had to overcome various hurdles on the road to distribution. Mainly, its leading actor's last name and thick Austrian accent. The film was released initially with Arnold Schwarzenegger and his voice. Um, The distributor at the time felt Arnold was not a household name, then God knows. Uh, he was Mr. Universe, however, um, but they felt that that his name and his voice were not an asset. So they changed, they dubbed him with a, a non-accented voice and changed his name to Arnold Strong. Then for, and they released the film again. What's your name? Hercules. Greek, huh? Very old family. Sir? So it's and democratic. You're addressing the captain of the ship. Now you say sir to me. I'm Hercules. So you told me. No man is superior to Hercules. What's your name? Hercules. Greek, huh? A very old family. Sir? Oh, I'm democratic. You're addressing the captain of the ship. Now you say sir to me. I'm Hercules. So you told me. No mortal is superior to Hercules. Then they changed the name of the film to Hercules Goes Bananas 
for a period of time, released it again. Then Arnold became famous. Um, and suddenly the film was back on the street with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arnold's voice. Um, so the film went through various uh, birth pangs. Um, I, <clears throat> for a while, the film was was not in circulation. Then one day, I remember very vividly um, opening a pages of TV Guide and seeing a, a double-page ad for Hercules in New York with Ono Schwarzenegger. And I was on the phone with a friend at the time, and I said, oh, oh my God, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and it has remained back. You know, it's so it's so odd. So with all the re-releases and the rebranding, obviously someone has gotten rich off of this movie. <laughs> more than some, more than someone. Uh, numerous people have. Yeah. The film, the film has made a fortune for a, for a number of owners. Wow. Um, and it's still, I I still get a check every year mm. as a residual from this film I made fifty years ago. Um, it's amazing, and, and it's because of Arnold, of course. Um, but uh, the film has had a long life. He, you know, I, I give guest lectures at film schools, at universities, at whatever, and invariably the person introducing me will, you know, list awards, Emmys, festival awards, all that kind of stuff, and um, and a bunch of other movies invariably some young person will raise their hand and say, and you directed Hercules in New York. I mean, <laughs> it has certainly um, made my name familiar with a lot of people who might not have known it otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have made better films. <laughs> um, yeah, so, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how, uh, because a, a, a lot of people are best known for their, their very first film and yes. and and you've obviously had uh, uh over a 50-year career so uh it's it's interesting to me how you kind of grapple with that throughout your life and it seems like it might come <laughs> it come in stages i mean you might have the sta yes. the stage of resentment and then finally the stage of acceptance yeah i i went through a period when i was making shall i say serious films <laughs> <laughs> When I was, you know, winning Emmys, getting major festival awards, getting serious attention, people would mention Hercules in New York, and I sort of grimace inside. And then a friend of mine said, Arthur, be proud of that film. It's meant a lot to a lot of people. And then it was on, it was on, I think, Turner Classic Movies one day. And, uh, and I said, I'm going to look at this movie, because I hadn't <laughs> seen it in probably 20, 30 years at that point. And I watched it, and I said, it's fun. It's, mm -hmm. it's tongue-in-cheek. It's, it, it, it's not meant to be taken seriously, but it's, it's done with a certain flair and a certain spirit and, a, and a, a, a definite sense of humor, and it's fun. And I reclaimed possession of it and, uh, and did so with, uh, with some degree of pride. Anytime you need me, anytime you want me, just think of me, and I'll be there for as long as you want me to. Yeah. We hope you'll be here for the next episode of Movie Geek Yearbook. 
covering the films that were released in the month of March 1970. Until that pressure equalizes, everything within 20 feet of him that's not nailed down or strapped in is going to get sucked right out that hole. Is it that powerful? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. This is Bloody Mama, the incredible saga of Ma Barker and her boys, the most bloodthirsty killers in the history of crime. What's more boring than a queen doing a Judy Garland imitation? A queen doing a Betty Davis imitation. For those of you who have forgotten, for those of you who haven't forgotten, and for those of you who never knew, Woodstock, where it all began. Tune in to the next episode of Movie Geek Yearbook, Class of 1970. Enjoy advanced access to future episodes and our archive of uncut interviews from this episode by becoming a supporter of the podcast. Visit moviegeekyearbook.com for more details. Mm-hmm.